Hey, this is Big Rev. Thanks for tuning in to Masterclass Theology, a weekly podcast where we study books of the Bible a verse at a time and apply it to our lives. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Let's rock. All right, cool. <laughs> well, welcome to Masterclass Theology. We are starting a brand new series tonight called New Creation. And this comes from a verse in the Bible that meant a lot to me as a, a teenager. I, I actually can't say that. I can't say it meant a lot to me. I, I need to correct myself. It was the name of, my, of the original youth group I was in as a high school student. I was a part of a church uh called uh, temple baptist church and the the youth group was called temples new teens we were called tnt youth group and <laughs> i look back it's kind of cheesy but but it's cool too i guess and it comes from second corinthians five seventeen. therefore if anyone is in christ the new creation has come the old is gone the new is here so the idea of if you're a christian you're a new creation there's something new about you that the old Joel, so this is teenage Joel at the time, I guess the old Joel is no longer to be the current Joel, and the new Joel in Christ is to be the current Joel, so that's the idea of new creation, so uh, we're looking at this, we're, we're looking at this in the new year here, um, happy new year, happy 2022, to be able to look at newness, and who were some characters in the Bible that definitely had a new experience, and this week is kind of uh, out of left field. These are people who are not considered to be people of faith. And next week will be kind of more of a center field. We'll see people who are kind of faithful. And, and, and the following week will be kind of right fields. We'll see people who they, they definitely think that they're faithful, that they're great people of faith. And in all these instances, there's some kind of a transformation. There's something... Um, about uh, about Jesus that changes them, and we see uh, we we see a transformation in their lives, and so that is to be our story as well. So let me open us up in a word of prayer, and we will we will sally forth with this. God, thank you for the study tonight. I thank you for these men and women and their journey uh, with me during this, and we just thank you, God, for for your text, and we get to learn about two very interesting characters and very awkward situations they were in with other characters as well. And, and God, we just pray as we study your text that, it is, that something stands out to us, that a character just will, will, will grab a hold of us and we'll see our own story in, in this story. And as we look at these themes, God, I just pray that we're just reminded of, of, of our place in your story, that we are all in Christ, new creations. And we just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So we're starting with the story of Naaman. If you're going to be a Hebrew nerd, probably Naaman. That's probably how definitely uh, I, I tell people when they read their Old Testament, and especially if you have an English Bible, pronounce every vowel. And might as well. This be, so this is probably Naaman is his name. Uh, but he's an Aramean. So this is modern day. Uh, this, is, this, this is the Assyrian the Arameans, modern day Syrians. This, these are the uh, enemies of God's people. And yeah, these were definitely not people 
that Israel would have gotten along with at all. So we're in Second, second Kings chapter 5, 1 to 27. Let's just uh, let's start by reading, reading Naaman's story, then we'll pick up with Gehazi. Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier. And then the text just kind of says it bluntly, and he had leprosy. Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken Catherine, a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who was in Samaria, and Samaria being the northern kingdom there, he would, the capital city of the northern kingdom, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. So by the way, that tells us right away that Naaman's leprosy probably wasn't um, contagious to the point that we think, because he's just walking in front of his master, the king. So it's going to be described later on as, as it's, there, there's, the Bible talks about, though your sin be as scarlet, it'll be white as snow. We like to look at that image of purity being white as snow. Well, there's a second image in the Bible about white as snow, and it's leprosy. So when, in the book of Numbers, when Miriam has her, Moses' sister gets punished by God, she becomes like snow. She becomes leprous. And so that leaves some commentators to believe that maybe Naaman did have a skin disease, but maybe it was kind of like a, like my, we might look like a vitiligo today where someone has, you know, white patches on their face and skin that are definitely abnormal looking, but they're not necessarily or at all contagious. So he's able just to walk into the presence of the king. So he may not have had a contagious skin disease like we encounter in the New Testament where they got to walk around unclean, unclean, hiding out in the, in the outskirts of town. He may not have been contagious. He may have been. The text doesn't say, but he just walks in front of the king. We understand quarantine today. We understand keeping distance today. He's not keeping distance. He walks right in there. He went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. It's a massive amount of stuff here. The, letters, the letter that he took to the king of Israel read, with this letter, I am sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. So really what he's doing there is staving off a geopolitical warfare thing. So it's like, I'm going to send my number one general to you. And just so you know, there's not going to be a battle. I'm, I'm, this is like a, He's coming with my letter saying, we're not starting a battle. Maybe you can cure him, O king. Okay. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. So he's seeing something, but there's a reason why this letter had to get sent. He's, uh, he's seeing maybe there's something going on here. The interesting thing about this moment is this is in the north there was not one king in the north that was god fearing mm. they were all they were all baal worshipers in fact this king of israel was probably a, a greater idol worshiper than the king of aram who was clearly an idol worshiper because at least with the king of aram there's no hint of worshiping yahweh israel's god with israel's king there's at least a hint of worshiping god because he names drop god right he named drops god right here my god that you, like, what do you care? You're an idol worshiper yourself. You're a Baal worshiper. And I know that because it's in the north. There's not one good king in the north. All the faithful kings, 
like a Josiah. They were all in the south in Judah. Not one king up north was good. So it's ironic that he's talking about that here. Can I kill and bring back to life? Well, you're the king. Evidently, your 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 colleague, your your opposing king, thought that you had this power. So here it is. When Elisha, the man of God, this is not Elijah. This is a this is Elisha, probably you know, Elisha probably be a, not a bad pronunciation, though it sounds kind of feminine to our ears. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, and because, you know, prophets usually, you know, tearing of the robes is, is a sign of brokenness and repentance, and, and that, that's kind of like the currency of the prophet. And so he's hearing this going, whoa, what's going on here? He sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me. He will know there was a prophet in Israel. So that was kind of a shot across the bow, theologically. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, go, wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored. You will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord, his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not, and he, he, he quotes some names of rivers in his hometown, Abana and Far, Farpar, the rivers of Damascus. Aren't they better than the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored and he became clean as that of a young boy. Then Naaman and all of his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know there is no God in all the world except in Israel. So please accept a gift from your servant. The prophet answered, as surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. If you will not, said Naaman, please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry, for your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other god but the Lord. But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Rimon, to bow down, and he is leaning on my arm, and I have to bow down there also. When I bow down in the temple of Ramon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. Go in peace, Elisha said. So with Naaman here, if you look on your sheet, with Naaman, we have greatness. And there was nobody in his kingdom that was like Naaman. He was a great guy. He was considered great by his master, the king. And he was probably a warrior unlike any other. And I like the theological reality there, the, the Lord. So even though this is a foreign land who had been conquering Israel, the Lord had given great victory to the kingdom of Aram through Naaman. So God was already at work in Naaman's life. He just didn't know it. He was probably giving glory to, his, to the God he was worshiping or his, his master was worshiping, Rimon. He didn't know that the only true God was giving him victory in his life. There's a theological reality there. The theological reality continues is that, hey, um, your gods and your king can't heal you, but the other kingdom's God can. And there's a prophet of that God that if you go meet that prophet, you can be healed. And, and it's coming from an unlikely source, a little slave girl, someone who was captured. And we saw another little slave girl earlier on in another slavery story. 
And that, of course, was, was the same Miriam we mentioned a moment ago. And saying, hey, I know, I know somebody who can, who can nurse this Hebrew baby for you. And yeah, and this is, there's greatness here, but there's a theological reality and there's pride. We see pride here with, with Naaman. And he was expecting an entourage. He was expecting, he traveled all this way to go see that prophet. And he was expecting the prophet to come out there with pomp and circumstance and make some big Wizard of Oz-like proclamation for the kingdom. And here it is. I hear in the name of Yahweh, our God, I proclaim you healed. And let me do my, you know, abracadabra. You know, can you say, wave his hand over it. You know? So he's expecting some huge thing because remember, Naaman is a great guy. So great guy, he expected a great feat to be done for him. And that's not how God was working this out. And he, 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 he in his pride, he huffs away. And thankfully, God had put someone to name his life to remind him of a, another reality. If, if this God is, is going to heal you, this God's going to heal you. And you're, you would accept something huge, but you're not going to accept something small. So they kind of called him on his logic there. And thankfully, he, he paid attention. And so he humbled himself and went back. You might say he repented here because he turned and went back. It's not that great of a theological repentance, but still there's a turning there. There is a, okay, you know what? I'm going to swallow whatever pride I've got and I'm going to turn to the only answer I have. And that answer is not me and my reality, but it's this God. There's something about that. We can't just ignore that. And in that repentance, he, he has obedience. So when John the Baptist says in Luke chapter three, produce fruit in keeping with repentance, we've got a fruit here for Naaman. That fruit is obedience. So yeah, I've got, I've got cleaner waters to go in. I've got waters that we consider more holy than your Jordan River. I can, if you want me to go bathe in a river, I got a river. I mean, my goodness. I've known people that refused to come to Jesus unless uh, Billy Graham came to town. And they waited and waited and waited for Billy Graham to come to town. And then he finally came to town with one of his big crusades. And then they got saved. They had to have the certain salvation at the certain moment. It had to be a big production and all that stuff. This guy's like, I got production value. I can go to my hometown with the greatest rivers we've got. And yeah, and I don't go to your dirty Jordan River. I don't want any of that. Seriously? Well, but he did it. He showed obedience. He showed humility. And then he showed gratitude. He wants to, I mean, he wants to just give. See, the cool thing about this is God's grace can't be earned and it can't be deserved. So this isn't, I'm going to pay for the solution and then I'm going to get the solution. This was God providing the answer and he wants to respond with gratitude. That's completely different. That's actually very appropriate. And we who, who support ministries and we who attend churches and we who participate, we, one of the things we have is gratitude because we have experienced grace. We have experienced the goodness of God. We want to respond and we want to give back. And that's a very appropriate thing. And he wants to give to the ministry here, as it were. He wants to give, just give this gift. You know, he, he's been restored and his face and his skin or what are he, we don't know where it's at. He just mentioned wave his hand over the spot. Maybe it was a certain spot that was very disfiguring. I don't know. But he was expecting Elisha to wave his hand over a spot, he said. And 
Now that's gone. And he wants to respond. And there's nothing wrong with that response. But the end of Naaman's story is grace. And grace for the undeserved. He didn't do anything to earn this grace. He didn't do anything to deserve it. He certainly didn't pay for it. It's not like it's a contract with God. Like, I'm going to do my part. You're going to do yours. No. He didn't deserve any of it, but he received it. And he wanted to respond. So then we got this guy named Gehazi. He's probably Gehazi. He's probably got a fun name. This is a guy that's on the inside, a servant of, 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 of Elisha. You would expect him to have his head on straight. But, well, we'll see what he does here. Okay, so Naaman he went back to the man of God. Okay. All right, and, and it's kind of cool. He wanted, to, he wanted to take some earth back with him. That was kind of a cool thing, a nice little symbol. I'm going to take some of the earth of Israel back. He doesn't know the theological reality that you can worship Yahweh anywhere. You don't have to worship him on Israel's soil. But he's, he's a polytheistic pagan who's trying to honor this very God who saved his life. We can respect that. I mean, if nothing else, we can respect his gesture there. Okay. So verse 19, go in peace, Elisha said, after Naaman had traveled some distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said to himself, my master was too easy on Naaman, this Aramean, by not accepting from him what he brought. As surely as the Lord lives, so just like Elisha said, as surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, Gehazi is going to drop a, a, a vow for God too here. Surely as the Lord lives. He was too easy on this Aramean. As surely as the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi hurried after Naaman. When Naaman saw him running toward him, he got down from the chariot to meet him. Is everything all right, he asked? Yeah, if I was Naaman, I'd be kind of freaking out a little bit. Like, okay, is this one of those things where, you know, you, like you hear about it in Asian cultures where, where you, you, you offer something to somebody and they tell you no, but they really want it, but they're just being polite. They're supposed to deny you like three times or something like Japanese culture. You deny, you deny the first thing you give them, you offer the second time, they still deny it. You offer it a third time, but eventually hospitality sake, they have to take it. So maybe he's thinking I've messed up. I should have just left the stuff there. I should have just, he said not to pay him or whatever. I should have just, you know, put it in his yard or something. He's probably freaking out a little bit here. Is everything all right? It's like, is he going to turn back into a, you know, his scaly skin disease again? What's going on here? Is everything all right? Um, well, everything, everything is all right, Ghazi answered. But my master sent me to say, two young men from the company of the prophets have just come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two sets of clothing. So we, as the readers of the story, understand that this probably didn't happen because Elisha is, that's, that's not the way, that's not the way somebody who's going to trust in God is going to do things, to go back on his word like that. But this Gehazi kind of is a slimy character here. We kind of, we're getting a taste in our mouth already because, you know, the text has been pretty clear with us about Elisha. Okay. Please give them a talent of silver and two sets of clothing. Well, by all means. See, Naaman comes off scot-free here. By all means, take two talents. I mean, he was wanting to give all the stuff, and, and Elisha wouldn't let him do it. Take two talents. He urged Gehazi to accept them, and then tied up the two talents of silver in two bags with two sets of clothing. He gave them to two of his servants, and they carried them ahead of Gehazi. So Gehazi didn't even have to carry it. Naaman's own crew, his own posse is going to carry this from him. When Gehazi came to the hill, he took the things from the servants and put them away in the house. See, he's hiding here. He sent the men away, and they left. When he went in and stood before his master, Elisha asked him, Where have you been, Gehazi? 
your servant didn't go anywhere. Okay, now, so now, now everything's come full circle. Now we know that Elisha didn't order any of these things because he's going to lie before, before Elisha, the prophet of God. You're just going to try doing that. You know, we saw how that worked out for Ananias and Sapphira, who lied before Peter about a donation involving money. Um, your servant didn't go anywhere, Gehazi answered. But Elisha said to him, was not my spirit with you when the man got down from his chariot to meet you? It's kind of an odd way to say it, but he's basically telling Gehazi, if I'm a prophet of God, I can see things you have no idea that I can see. So I, I understand what's going on here with that, especially, especially in this context. Got a question? Yeah, first off the king. Yeah, that's a great, great, great proverb there. And was not my spirit with you when the man got down from his chariot to meet you? Is this the time to take money or to accept clothes? It implies there might be a time for that. Because it's a, it's a question. It, it could have been a, just a completely rhetorical question. But the idea, is this the time to do that? That we're going to make God's grace something of a, con, of, of, of a contract or a deed or a, a title to a car or something? It's like, okay, you paid everything off. Now you get your certificate. Is that what God's gifting is about? Is, is this what this is about? I mean, it's, it's a great question. Well, is this the time to take money or accept clothes or olive groves and vineyards or flocks and herds or male and female slaves? Now, we know that Gehazi didn't take those things. There is nothing about olive groves or vineyards or flocks or herds, but it's possible that, that Elisha was just extrapolating. It's possible that he saw into the future or something and saw that he knew that with all these things, Gehazi was then going to go purchase other things or something. I don't know. We don't know here. Maybe he just saw what was wrapped up in the, he's just saying, is, is this the time to be accepting bribes or accepting gifts, whatever those gifts may be? We don't know here, but the question still stands. Naaman's leprosy will cling to you and your descendants forever. Ouch. Could you imagine being Gehazi's kids and you wake up with dad's leprosy and then their kids and then their kids and they keep getting this leprosy. This tells us that this leprosy will not be washed away. You can imagine Gehazi going down to, you know, dunking in the Jordan River a thousand times, you know, and no. So Gehazi had was an opportunistic man. He had lies and hiding. The theological reality is that God sees, you know, it's the idea of where can I go from your spirit? If I go to the highest heavens or the lowest deep, I can't hide from you, God. And hiders think they can hide from God. And he was, the end of Naaman's story was grace. The end of Gehazi's story was punishment. So pause here. Which of these two are you most like? And if you answer, your name it. just remember and that's a good answer but just remember what you're doing this is somebody who wasn't in god's family this is somebody who was an outsider this is somebody who really didn't know any better this would be a faithful gentile outsider so if you're going to go that route which is is the probably the best answer here to say you're like gahazi See, it's the contrast that the, the second Kings text gives us. So you read this text and you're saying to yourself, gosh, I don't want to be like the second guy. 
I actually want to be like the first guy. And that would be like a first, first century a Jew in Jesus' day saying, I, I really need to be like the Samaritan instead of being like the least, Levite or the priest. The Good Samaritan story, this hits the same way. When Jesus said to that, to that, that teacher of the law, which of those three was the neighbor? Which of those three did, did what was right? Love the neighbor as himself. Oh, the one who did this. Yeah, the Samaritan. Yeah, 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 yeah. So this, for you, for you to answer that question, you got to absorb that in culturally. Here, this would have been not an easy answer. To say, yeah, I need to be like the 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 conquering Gentile who have been enslaving our people and conquering us. He was the right one in God's eyes, and the guy who was like my brother, a fellow Jew, he was not the right one. See, that's actually a tough answer if you think about it culturally. All right, so the next story here is Zacchaeus. Shorter story, Luke 19. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. Yeah, he's a traitor. This is somebody who accepted, who got to accept extra money, extra taxes from, from the people to, to pay Rome. And he got to keep all the overs. But he was a chief tax. He, under, he had underlings that were sending things up the chain. So it's like the... The, the oddest pyramid scheme of all. And he was just making money off the backs of everybody. He would have been one of the most hated people around, not just your normal run of the mill tax collector traders, but a chief. Oh my goodness. So, so Luke has done his homework. He's reminding everybody who this was. And for Gentiles reading Luke, because Luke is a Gentile and for any Roman citizen reading Luke, they would have been going, Oh yeah. The, those guys who make us some money, but yet their own people probably hate their guts. Yeah, this guy is going to get nowhere with anybody. He deserves nothing. And this guy is just a jerk of jerks. He wanted to see who Jesus was. And probably someone in Jesus' day is probably like, yeah, so you can probably get a few nickels out of him or something. But because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. You know, we remember Zacchaeus was a wee little man, the little song. Well, evidently, I don't know what the heights were like in those days, but this guy, no matter what the, the, the median height was, Let's say the median height was five foot eight for a man back then. Let's just choose a, a number. This guy was so short that a five foot eight person would be too much for him. He couldn't see over this guy. So <laughs> he is, uh, yeah, he is, he's, he's done. He's, I got to go high, get up in a tree. Oh, yeah, <laughs> Danny DeVito. Yeah, that's right. Uh, this is a little, a little guy. And he's just a wee little dude here. And so he wants to... But, you know, it's kind of, a, kind of an interesting way he goes about it here, where he wants to see who Jesus was. But because he's so short, he couldn't see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. So he scoped out the, 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 the line wherever, where Jesus is going to pass, okay? And then he makes sure. So you would do this, by the way. Those of you who remember going to parades, uh, you you would where's the parade route and you wonder where are they going to toss the candy or where the float's going to come by you would get scope ahead and you'd find a good spot to put your lawn chairs or whatnot so you know you're they're all going to pass by this spot okay so that's what he's doing here he's like jesus is going to pass by i'm going to get up in the tree he's probably not going to notice me because he's got all these people around him and why would he notice me because i am who i am and i have this past and nobody likes me and 
this is a way where I'm not going to get trampled by people and I'm, I'm going to be up and just going to just be up here minding my business. I can just check this guy out. I can get the Jesus experience and just be about my business. Okay. So when Jesus reached his spot, he looked up and said to him, and this had to been a terrifying moment if you really think about it, because there's probably a portion of Zacchaeus that wanted to be noticed. As, as we see the story unfold, he wants to respond to Jesus. And he's going to respond tremendously to Jesus. But there's probably a part of him that also is liking to hide because he doesn't want Jesus to say anything to him, I'm sure. Because what's Jesus going to say to the scum of the earth? And that's how his people treated him because he was the chief tax collector. He was the, the jerks of jerks. So he probably, the, the people are probably thinking, whoa, Jesus, this is probably a moment where the crowd's going, what's he going to say? Because yeah, Jesus is going to single that guy out. Good, Jesus, you should single that guy out. There he is. Let him have it. You know, turn him into a frog or something. Just get, take care of this guy, Jesus. What are you going to do? Condemn him, curse him. Have at him, Jesus. Zacchaeus, come down immediately. Okay, what's he going to do? Smack him around? What's going to happen here? I must stay at your house today. Wham. So he came down at once. I bet a person never has jumped out of a tree in a safe manner as fast as, they, as this guy did. All of a sudden, his life's going to change. Wow. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. What's really odd about the book of Luke is that tax collectors are treated nicely. Luke treats the little people, and I'm not just talking about stature, I'm talking about, well, I guess it works here too, but the people who were the, the also-rans, the nobodies, like in the, the name and Gehazi story, the servant girl, I mean, Luke treats those people the lowest of the low, he treats them as the ones who get it, and he treats the highest of the high, the mucky mucks, they don't get a thing, they don't understand anything about Jesus. They missed the boat completely. But the ones who were lesser in people's eyes, and here, it hardly gets any lower than a tax collector. Oddly enough, who is not great in his own eyes? He came down at once and welcomed him gladly. So with Zacchaeus here, we've got, yeah, he's great in his own way. And he was great. He had a high position. He was making money hand over fist. But the theological reality is, I don't think that was enough for him. There was something within Zacchaeus that said, I've got to go see this Jesus. I'm not, there's something dissatisfied about my life where I have to go put myself in harm's way. I've got to go see this Jesus. We don't know why. We don't know what was inside of him that prompted him to go. But I bet that's been a part of your story. As you transition from being the old you to the new you, that tug, as the father draws you to him, there's something about that that prompted Zacchaeus to get onto that parade route, into that tree, and ready. Well, he showed humility, and he, and he showed obedience immediately it's like it's an obedience that jesus speaks and everything obeys whether it's the wind and the waves whether it's a demon in a person when jesus calls demons out they don't they don't sit there and argue with them they come right out 
How, how, are you, how are you going to not obey the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? Even here in the Gospels, it's like he's not yet exalted into heaven as he one day would be in the Gospels, and like in Acts chapter one kind of way, ascending. He had not yet ascended to heaven again, but already he had authority. And that authority is going to be all over the gospel. Who is this guy? My goodness. How can he have this kind of authority? My goodness. Well, he's showing his authority here as well. He'd be able to transform a sinner. All the people saw this to begin to mutter. He's gone to be the guest of a sinner. I can't believe he wants to have dinner with this guy. Are you serious? This Jesus, this holy teacher, why would he go and eat with that guy? Are you serious? But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, not a small figure. I mean, even if he wasn't made of much money, half is still half. Man, this isn't like I'm going to donate it and get a tax write-off. No, this guy was the tax. He was the tax write-off. He was the, the IRS of his day. He's going to give all of his stuff to the poor? How is he going to pay Rome? How is he going to make any more money? How is he going to be able to exist from this point on? Life would have gotten a lot difficult for Zacchaeus. Yeah, he's got more than most, but half is still half. And he's not done. He's not done. Here and now I give half my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, and that might have been kind of rhetorical because pretty much, yes, tax collectors made their entire wage by taking more than they should that they, they than they were supposed to take. If the tax was two, two drachmas or something, they took three or four and they pocketed the rest kind of thing. And they, he literally made his business taking more. So that was probably a yuck, yuck, yuck kind of moment. But here he's saying it, he's, he's putting it on the table. If I have taken more, I'll pay back four times the amount. I don't know if he's going to go broke. I would imagine probably not. He didn't say he's going to leave his job. But he seems to be different. I mean, who says this kind of thing? I mean, who, I mean this, is, this is a massive thing here. I'll gladly pay back the amount. I won't begrudgingly pay back the amount. There's joy here. There's gladness. This is huge. When someone comes from the old to the new, when Jesus takes someone and makes them a new creation, have the Zacchaeus kind of joy. Dang. I mean, wow. There's joy. There's, I will gladly do whatever I need to do. This is the same gladness we see with Naaman. He wanted to give the gifts. Like, oh, please. So when, even when Gehazi shows up, he doesn't expect anything wrong. Oh, yeah. He, he wants it. Why? I was trying to give it to him. He, take it. I mean, my goodness, take it. Just take it. I don't care. I, it was, I was trying to. This is his. Take it. There's gladness there. There's gladness. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house. You know, if anybody was too far gone, you know, we like to look at the thief on the cross. Say, oh, that, if anyone's too far gone to be saved, it's got to be that guy. I look at Zacchaeus. Hello. I look at Zacchaeus. Is Zacchaeus too far gone? Had he, his, was his past too much? Was he too far beyond the limit to become a new creation? Could God save even a bum like him, a hated traitor, scum of the earth like him? Could God even save a Zacchaeus? Yes, because God did. Today's salvation 
has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. You look at him as a traitor. God looks at him as someone who can be restored, who can be reconciled. Boom. And then Jesus drops a theological reality. For the son of man came to seek and save the lost. Zacchaeus is as lost as it gets. And he thought he was seeking Jesus. See, people complain about seeker-sensitive churches. And all churches cater to the seeker so much. The seeker is not the person coming through the doors. The seeker is the one who leaves the 99 and goes after the one. God is the seeker. Zacchaeus thought he was seeking after Jesus, but Jesus stopped at his tree and said, you come down from going to your house today, as the song says. Here it is. Salvation has come to this house, for the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. The Son of Man has come to save the Zacchaeuses of the world. That gives hope to someone like me. That should give hope to someone like you. So who are you in this story? Are you the Zacchaeus? Despite your past, you turn to God in, in humility, in obedience and repentance. He showed repentance. He turned right around and gave. He produced fruit just like Naaman produced fruit. Naaman had to turn and Naaman immediately obeyed and, and did all these things. Dipped himself in the water. With, with Zacchaeus, he just prompted. So this wasn't, this wasn't, God, if you save me, I will then give all these things. No, God saved. Jesus says, I'm going to eat with you. We're like this now. We're together now. I'm going to be intimate with you and have table intimacy with you. And then he responded to that grace with giving. Same thing with Naaman. Exactly the same. The crowd would have expected Zacchaeus to buy his salvation. Zacchaeus received salvation. He received grace. And he responded with generosity. He was restored. You can either be Zacchaeus or be the murderer. And if you say, well, I'm more like Zacchaeus, it's just like with Naaman. Do you hear what you're saying? You are the person that is too hard to save, that nobody would care about, that everybody would say you're going to hell because of your past or because of your choices or because of your position, all these things, that God doesn't care for bums like you because you're, you're this or that. That's who you're saying you are. And theologically speaking, that's who we are. That's who we are. We don't deserve God's grace. But God came, to, Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost. That's a great story. The mutterers, I can't believe Jesus is going to go hang out with a sinner. People like that forgive people based upon um, their own standards. I would never be this way, so I, I wouldn't expect you to forgive me, so why would I forgive that? I, I expect things, and I can't believe I haven't received such things. And people are entitled when it comes to God's grace. I expect God to give me grace, but not this guy grace. That's pretty much the Pharisaical attitude in the Gospels. The parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. I thank you, God, that I'm not like that guy. Instead, I'm like me. Someone who can be easily forgiven by you, God, not like that guy. Yeah, well... Who are you? Who are you most like? What attitudes are new creation type attitudes? I want to close with this. 
This is the verse we started with. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself. It's like we were God's enemy. And God said, no, I'm going to reconcile you to me. He reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. Woo! You hear that, mutterers? God wasn't counting Naaman's sins against him because he was going to reconcile Naaman. And Naaman became a Yahweh worshiper at that point. Same category as someone like Ruth, a polytheistic pagan that got brought into God's family and made a commitment of faith. Boom. Zacchaeus, a great sinner. God, a greater savior. <laughs> Here it is. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. If God's about reconciliation, we are to be about reconciliation. God has reconciled a person like you and a person like me to him. He expects us to be reconcilers as well. No, we're not dying for people's sins. No, we are not Jesus, but we are to be like Jesus. We are to have the attitude that wants to see people forgiven, that wants to see people reconciled to God. We at the bridge say we want to connect people with God. That connection means there's a reconciliation that must happen. This has been Big Riff, Master Blast Theology. New creation, part one. Thanks for letting me share. This has been Masterclass Theology. I pray you've been challenged and encouraged during today's episode, and I hope you'll continue to join us as we journey through the Bible. God bless.